Welcome to another episode of Decentralized Revolution, a podcast from the Libertarian Party Mises Caucus and Mises PAC. I'm Liam McCollum and I'm your host. And in today's podcast, we have Joseph Solis Mullen on the show again to talk about his brand new book, The Fake China Threat and Its Very Real Danger. I've read it and I, I believe it's essential um, to counter all of the incessant warmongering about China that we're hearing. As Janet Yellen is saying, we can afford paying for the war in Ukraine and the war in Israel at the same time. And as the U.S. continues to send aid packages to Taiwan after Biden has said we would defend Taiwan if China invaded, there's really no better time for you to buy this book and to share it with friends and family. Um, you can you can buy Joseph's book at Libertarian at libertarianinstitute.org, and we'll have that link attached below. I really hope you enjoy this conversation. I haven't done an inter interview in a while as I'm I'm back in school. I'm going to law school and my schedule is kind of chaotic, but I told the Mises Caucus that I'd help out with interviews as, as much as possible because I really enjoy doing this. Um, and, and make sure to catch the live streams on Monday with Aaron, Brandy, and Michael. They've been great. But as I said, I really hope you enjoy this. Here's my interview with Joseph Solis Mullen. All right, so I have Joseph Solis Mullen with me again. Um, he just published his book, The Fake China Thread, and I read through it a couple of weeks ago. I uh, tried to interview him before, but I had some connect connection issues with my internet. So we're going with take three, I believe. Um, but it, it's good to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me, Liam. Glad to be here. So I'm, I'm personally just interested in your book um, on a personal level because I grew up in a conservative community, um, and it seems like when you talk to a lot of Republican-minded people, um, even if they are great on like economics and you agree with them culturally and, and things like that, uh, and and even if they were great on Ukraine, you know, I've been saying for months now that if Biden were to start a conflict with China, they would immediately rally behind him, um, and. When, when I'm just discussing with conservatives that I'm friends with or just people in my family, it seems like they're very concerned with things like China um, buying up American land. Uh, and it seems like they want to blame everything on the Chinese, all the problems that we're having. And you and you kind of write about this in your book. Um, they also say that China is um, flooding our markets with drugs like fentanyl. Um, and it, it just seems like for the longest time, and maybe it's because they grew up with Red Dawn or something, uh, China is the biggest threat. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering what you would say to those people. Well, first, my pitch to uh, your classic small government Republican who you encounter in you know rural areas all over the country. I'm in Michigan, so I know exactly what you mean. I grew up in a community like that as well. Is, look, small government, limited government. Is, is virtually incompatible with the kind of great power conflict that Washington Beltway establishment type people want to pursue with China. And so the purpose of this book was to speak specifically to those people, because for libertarians like myself, it's, it's almost enough to just say, look, it's none of our business what goes on over there, the end. And so it would have been a very short book, a book that didn't even need to be written. What I wanted to do, therefore, was write a book that made a very strong case for uh, not being involved on the basis of China literally being no threat to the United States at all and not even being a real threat to its neighbors either. Because uh, 
it's it's important for conservatives, uh, you know, Republicans, to understand that the Fed, the inflation, the deficit, the debt. I mean, it's it's all it's all there. It's all because of the military establishment that we have and the effort to play, uh, you know, global policemen. And uh, yes, I do think you're right. Republicans would rally hard behind Biden. I think actually they would probably push and criticize him for being too weak, which is what they usually do when it comes to things like China, even though the United States has been very, very aggressive with China. Um, it's not stuff that really makes a lot of headlines over here, but just a couple weeks ago, uh, the Biden administration sent a clear message to China in its dispute over the, uh, the shoals over there by the Philippines that no, Washington considers those covered by the Mutual Defense Treaty from 1954 and that they will fight China over these spits of sand. And if you and if any of your listeners are interested in learning more about that, they can go over to the Libertarian Institute website, uh, the Libertarian Institute published my book, and they also publish weekly articles by me. And last week's dealt specifically with the question of, of those offshore claims, what the United States has agreed to, what we've been signed up to do. You know, I encounter people who are hesitant, even if they think China's a threat, they're still hesitant to commit the idea, you know, U.S. forces to a defense of Taiwan. We're not even talking about defending Taiwan now. We're talking about small, half-submerged reefs uh, that have some fishing grounds and oil there. So it's very important for people to understand uh, China, what it is, where it's at developmentally, what its aims are. And most importantly, when it comes to small government conservatives who want limited government but maybe fear China, they just need to understand that China is no threat and that giving Washington the power that it wants to confront China half a world away is incompatible with small government and incompatible with, with individual liberty. So in the preface of your book, you talk about um, libertarian realism, and I believe it's called uh, great power competition, competition considerations. Mm -hmm. Uh can you talk about the difference between the two and, and the two approaches? Because you say that you kind of adopt this libertarian realist perspective, but you need to consider where your audience is at. And, and the general public likes to consider these, these great power considerations. Yes. Uh, when it comes to great power conflict, I get it. When you look at the map, China is big. It has a lot of people. Its economy is the second largest in the world. So shouldn't they be super powerful and dangerous to us? Well, no, it depends on what you mean. If you mean, is China a threat to the homeland of the United States, to the well-being of the average American? Uh, no. Uh, and we can go into things like the buying of farmland and the TikTok and the drugs and all of that stuff, because a lot of those are just distractions from the fact that in the literal words of, gosh, I think it was Rex Tillerson, yeah, I think it was Rex Tillerson, Trump's Secretary of State. And you can read this in Bob Woodward's book. Uh, I think it was Rage. He wrote a few of them during the Trump White House years. But he said, look, Mr. President, the threat that China poses to us is that the United States Navy will no longer completely dominate the Pacific Ocean. Mind you, we're talking about dominating the Pacific Ocean right up to the shores of China. We're talking about when they say they conducted a freedom of navigation exercise around Taiwan, what they mean is they sailed heavily armed U.S. naval war vessels about 60 miles off the coast of China, of mainland China. And Americans would flip out. Americans would flip out if something like that happened over here. And that's a point that the Chinese make not infrequently. So if you mean, is China a threat to the empire, 
to trying to dominate the whole globe, every inch of it? Sure, because China is growing increasingly powerful enough to assert its interests in its immediate vicinity. I mean, we're talking about places that are 80, 100, 200 miles from the coast of China, several thousand miles from us. So yeah, in that sense, but in, in terms of our well-being, our freedom, no, China's no threat to those things at all. It's Washington that is a threat to our freedom. As the 20th century has shown with, with every new intervention, the state needs to get more and more and more powerful. And uh, it's, it's just a fact. It's uh, Bob Higgs wrote a great book about that. Uh, it's called Leviathan and Emergency, I believe it was, where he basically goes through and shows from the Civil War, World War I, World War II. Every time it's a new reason for the state to get more powerful and take more and more of your liberties away. And uh, there's no reason to think that this time will be any different. Can you talk a little oh, bit about and libertarian realism? I'm so sorry. Yes. Libertarian realism. So libertarian realism says, look, this idea that states have these eternal interests and that they can't do anything but pursue them is incorrect. Really, when you want to understand political decision making about foreign policy, you need to look domestically. So, for example, uh, in, in Israel recently, the Biden administration's knee jerk reaction was to 100 percent back Israel to the hilt. Right. Because he would have got crushed by Republicans domestically Domestically, if he hadn't done that. He would have gotten come after by the lobbying groups who went after Tom Massey for not supporting them. However, since Israel has started to bomb and destroy more and more uh, of Gaza and Gaza City, there's been pushback from important regional allies who don't want the Biden administration to let Israel keep doing that. And so now you start hearing the White House say, it's gone on far enough. They're going too far. We need to rein this in. At no point are they talking about anything other than just basic political considerations. Um, and, and when you look at uh, conflict with China, you look at the people who write these books about the China threat, they're almost all paid by the arms industry through various think tanks. And look, the war on terror, those were small, small, small beans, uh, you know, small arms, Humvees, things like that, night vision goggles. No, for great power conflict, you need new aircraft carrier battle groups and new submarines and new nuclear weapons. We're talking a whole different kind of military spending is what they want now. I mean, now we're talking about a permanent trillion dollar deficit just for military spending. It's incredible. Uh, like Ron Paul said, you could defend this, this country with some submarines, uh, but that's not what we have. We have a force that's built to be able to deploy anywhere and everywhere to get involved everywhere. And of course, when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And so it's no wonder then that our foreign policy is so heavily militarized. Uh, there's just a determination that we can just use our military to get whatever we want. And uh, I think you're seeing that uh, increasingly there is some pushback, but even then people's careers get tied up in these policies. Like, for example, is uh, Jake Sullivan or, you know, any of those people, are any of them ever going to say that, you know what, that was a total mistake what we did with Ukraine there? No. They're never going to say that. And, and no one's going to make them say it. There is no accountability. So, yeah. And I think another helpful thing when, when looking at libertarian and libertarian realism is also just methodological individualism, which, which tells us that like only through human action or only individuals act uh, that even when we're talking about collectives, we're talking about individual actors and when we're talking about war specifically, we're talking about individual politicians propagating certain policies that have specific interests. And I think often um, these politicians, in, in order to propagandize the people, they need to conflate their own interests with like 
like coming up with these these stories about how China's gonna uh, China is an imperialist force and and they're um, they're filtering all these drugs through the southern border and all this stuff because they have their own personal interests at heart. But it's not like they can go to the American people and say, oh, well, if if this war pops off, I'm going to make millions of dollars. So they need to create these stories. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the interests of of the politicians. Um, what, what are the interests of the United States politicians at, at the at the helm? Um, what what really are they worried about? And I guess also, what can we say about the interests of, of the Chinese politicians, too, and, and their foreign policy? Well, the number one goal of any politician is to stay in office. So they're never going to do, and that that goes for for any politician anywhere. There are great books written out, and the 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 subject area is called public choice theory. And I know a lot of your listeners are libertarians. If you have Scott Horton's uh, book on the war on terrorism, he has a chapter where he explains the origins of the Libya of the Libya intervention in strict terms of public choice theory. And then there are other books. Uh, uh, oh gosh. Bueno de Mesquita, I think is his name. He writes a lot of books about public choice theory and leadership. And look, whatever is going to be expedient uh, is going to be what is said. Um, you, you look at, just for example, the Yemen war resolution, right? Your constituents back home, let's say I'm a congressman, I'm going to receive probably zero calls about what's going on in Yemen, let's say. I am, however, going to have a lobbyist stop by my office and say, hey, there's this vote coming up. This this would be a great vote for you to consider this, that, and several other things. Your chief of staff has already told you, yeah, they're with these guys. They donated this much money to the campaign. A couple thousand dollars is all it takes. I mean, they're very cheap. Um, but, of course, they're taking from several hands all at once, so it adds up. But that that's essentially it. I mean, foreign policy, we're so insulated. Foreign policy is an, an especially easy one to pass the buck on because, number one, a lot of it's the executive branch. Congress has all but just thrown away its war powers. They want the president to make all those decisions. Those are tough decisions. And if something doesn't work out, you can just say, well, it wasn't me. I didn't support that. It was the it was the president that did that. And if it does work out, it's a very cheap way for you to be able to say, yeah, I support the president, obviously. Um, and again, even if it does go badly, I mean, look, the Afghanistan war went horribly for 20, at least, I would say probably 20 solid years. Maybe it had one good year in there somewhere, but basically it went bad for 20 years. It was a total sinkhole and nobody was beating down the doors of politicians to get that war ended. Even this past year when the Ukraine conflict was going on, a very serious conflict, which the United States was a party to, foreign policy was coming in no higher than like sixth, seventh, eighth on people's lists of concerns when the election rolled around in 2022. And that's just the, that's just the cold hard fact of it is people do not in the United States have a comprehensive understanding of how Washington's foreign policy decisions cost them here at home in terms of inflation, uh, in terms of higher borrowing costs. Um, there are social costs, of course, as too. Um, we talked about deindustrialization the last time I was on here. People losing jobs. People blame China took all the jobs. That's not what happened. How did China magically take all the jobs? Washington sent the jobs over there. That was all part of the plan. Just like back in the 60s and 70s, I wrote another article on this at the Libertarian Institute. People can go in there and look. I got quotes from all the firsthand participants talking about how, well, you know, uh, if we give them this access to our market, even though they don't give us that access to their market, it's uneven for workers and, and such, they'll let us have 
X number of military bases or they'll let us do this or that. The foreign policy considerations were what drove those things. And so it's, to me, just quite hilarious that they turn around and say, well, China stole all the jobs. And it's like, no, 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 you did that because you thought it would cause the country to grow rich and prosperous by incorporating them into the global economy. And that then they would be transformed into a democracy by a thriving commercial middle class. And that like all the rest of the democracies in Western Europe and Japan and South Korea, they would just be a nice pliant security vassal for the United States. But of course, that's not what happened. So now it's got to be China's fault. Just like the huge failure of the war on drugs, it's quite a fact that all those areas that were hit very hard by deindustrialization are also the same areas where you have tons of opioid problems. And so, again, they just blame China for that, even though, you know, it's the drug war and our, fail and our failed border policies that are responsible for that. So it's anything to pass the buck. And China is super convenient to blame because it yeah. seems very plausible. It all seems very ominous and scary. Yeah, and that's why it might seem just a little like a, a bold claim to say that China isn't a threat at all. So I'm wondering if you can talk about the internal pressures on China, as well as the geopolitical pressures that make them not a threat. Sure. It's a very complicated situation. I, I think it's the longest chapter of the book. I, I split it into two parts, and then I split each of those parts into subsections. And so I start out by saying, let's take a look at, at China. Okay, its population has already peaked, and it's aging very, very rapidly. In 30 years, there's going to be half as many Chinese people. They're just dying out. They're graying out. And that was because of the state's horrible, failed one-child policy. And they uh, recently, about five years ago, tried to reverse it and say, no, 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 have as many kids as you want. But that's not how it works. Because uh, industrializing, urbanizing societies, it's more expensive to raise kids and there's less space to raise kids and people just want fewer kids. And that's just, it's been the same story in every single industrializing economy in the world and it's hitting China. So China's not, you know, India is already more populous than China. So China is totally surrounded on all sides from Russia and Mongolia in the north uh, to Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Vietnam, uh, Myanmar, Laos, Thailand, Indonesia, the Philippines, uh, Japan. I mean, it's completely hemmed in. I mean, and the terrain, the terrain is not like the United States. You, you're used to driving across the United States, just flat grassland everywhere. No, we're talking deserts, mountains, incredible climate, you know, uh, going through areas that have uh, very restive minority populations in the South. It's all imagine like a Vietnam movie. Like it's that's what it looks like down there. And there's just tons of like rebel ethnic groups right around the border there. Um, there's always trouble going on down there. And it's very tough to build infrastructure down there. It's hard to get a return on any of these investment projects. The Belt and Road Initiative is one of those you hear people throw around like China's going to take over the world with the Belt and Road Initiative. No, they're not. It was a huge sinkhole full of money. They're already rethinking that big time. That wasn't even the role of it. The role of the Belt and Road Initiative, which I'm sorry to kind of jump tracks here, but like the Belt and Road Initiative's job was to keep people employed in these highly inefficient state-run sectors of the economy that turned out like building materials and steel and stuff like that. And it was to print off more money to loan to these countries to buy the products and the labor and just to keep the whole thing going. Much like China's property bubble that's now in the process of deflating, it was all just a self-reinforcing thing. Um, China as the workshop of the world, that was really critical to China's huge economic growth. Well, now the advantages that made China the place to do business for the last 25, 30 years, those are gone now. And if you go to Walmart, I do this very frequently. I always pick things up and look and see where they're made. Increasingly, you see places like Thailand, Vietnam, 
India. It used to be all China. Not anymore. And it's because wages are going up. It's because China's cracking down trying to clean up the environment. Uh, because China's environmental degradation is horrible, and it's one of the few things that people over there can protest, and the government kind of like, oh, okay, we better do something. Um, so yeah, it's surrounded on all sides. Uh, it's graying. Uh, no, there's there's no way. I mean, Murray Rothbard, way back in the 1950s, wrote about sort of the same exact arguments and the fallacy of these arguments that are still, you say, the idea that they're going to island hop their way all the way over to the United States and conquer us, or that if they or that they're going to um like conquer all their neighbors and shut us out of these markets and stuff like why even if they conquer all those places why on earth would they do that like we're the people who buy the stuff like that's where all china's exports go is to western europe and the united states like we are their market um their internal consumer market is not nearly developed enough to consume all of its surplus uh, materials nor is the developing world not to mention China wouldn't even be able to get them all around to the developing world because they're so reliant on other countries. Uh, I wouldn't say goodwill, but certainly it's not a question that the United States Navy could shut off access to Middle East oil at any point. Um, the Malacca Straits dilemma features very prominently in Chinese security documents. This is the narrow choke point that you have to pass through to get over to China and Japan. Um so there are a million reasons why China is not going to take over the world. I try and go through most of them and I try and debunk some of the more uh, um, the more popular arguments about why we need to be scared that China's like buying farmland or things of that nature, you know, just to try and give people a realistic picture of yeah, like, like, yes, China is strong now. They were super weak and poor and Marxist and had nothing. And now they are state capitalist and pretty strong and, have enough of a rocket force that really the U.S. Navy shouldn't be messing around right in their backyard. But that's it. That's all. Yeah, in, in Montana here, um, the three biggest issues that we hear from politicians and and now um, Senator Tester is preparing for his election next year. So we're starting to hear him him talk about these issues, too, is uh, the farmland, fentanyl and then um, the China spy balloon because it crossed over Montana skies. So. uh since you mentioned it there, how do you deal with the farmland issue? In the well, so I just break it down very simply. Look, China owns less than 1%, less than 1%. And they own it for the same reason that investment funds own it. It's been a great return on investment. Second reason they own it is because China does not have nearly enough arable quality farmland of their own. It's the same reason Saudi Arabia buys up tracts of farmland to farm things like alfalfa. They just don't have enough arable land. Uh, again, China has huge expanses of desert and mountain and jungle. There's just, there's a billion people there close to it. They're heavily import reliant. And uh, so there you go. I mean, if you're scared of China owning 1% of the farmland to feed itself and make a little money, okay, but that's all it is. So so what, what's the story behind the, the fentanyl crisis then? I mean, the fentanyl like, crisis. From, oh, yeah. From a libertarian standpoint, obviously, like the, the war on drugs plays a big role in this. But is there any veracity behind the claims that, that China is actually importing drugs through the Mexican border? OK, so I would say this, uh, of course, as you said, war on drugs, terrible policy. Um, there was a lot of two like very inappropriate behavior going on with the pharmaceutical industries that, you know, they've made whole investigations, things like that. There's, I believe the pharmacy chains now are in trouble and 
teetering on the verge of bankruptcy because they're being held liable as well. So I would say all of that stuff aside, in terms of China's role, there are several companies, companies who are operating in China, who are making these precursor chemicals is what they're called. And then they're putting them in containers, putting a different label on them and shipping them off to Mexico or Canada. The other country that is doing this, but you don't hear anything about it is India, Indian companies. And again, it's Indian companies. It's Chinese companies. It's not Xi Jinping doing it. It's not the Chinese state doing it. just like it's not uh, Narendra Modi or the Indian government doing it. It's private companies who are saying, man, there's a lot of demand over there. I know we could get in trouble, but a lot of profits to be made. And that's what it is. Um, and of course, the reason you hear about it coming from China is because China is our new enemy. Whereas India is our new hopeful friend who we're going to use to fight our new enemy. So just like you never hear really anything about India's terrible human rights record, but you always hear about China's horrible human rights record. The reason for these things. Um, so yeah, there are there are precursor chemicals coming in. They're being processed in Canada and Mexico. And they're being smuggled across the border. And that's it. Uh, the U.S. government just sanctioned a few companies in China who they've identified as making these chemicals. So, and then, I mean, from, from a libertarian standpoint and an Austrian economic standpoint, the, the lesson we learn about prohibition is that the incentives are that these drugs actually have to come across the, the border more um, dense quantities. Uh, so, so the re, the, they're more potent because uh, they, in order to actually get them across the border um, safely, they, they, it, it's a smaller amount, but it's more potent. And that's why we're starting to see these overdoses. Um, so I, th I think for anyone who's interested in that issue, I would just go to uh, the Mises Institute and, and look up some articles on on the drug war in general and and why that's largely to do with it as well. Um, but but I'm wondering. If, that's if a great a that's that, a great right? point, though. Another time the state intervened. And what did it do? It didn't help anyone. Do they really think that these people making these drugs want to kill their own customers? No, that doesn't even right. make sense. And then I did want to address really the hot air balloon thing real quick. I didn't realize that was still getting play in Montana. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, because the Pentagon came out like six months ago and said, yeah, we were just kidding about that. It wasn't a spy balloon. So, yeah, if yeah, you're I mean, listening to this and you're in Montana, please just look up Pentagon admits, quote unquote, spy balloon collected no data flying over the United States. It was just a little like one paragraph tiny. Yeah, remember that spy balloon? Well, it wasn't actually spying on us. And it was just full of over-the-counter American electronics. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're, they're still playing out the narrative that there, there are a few spy balloons going over American skies all the time that Biden's just not telling us about. So They have satellites. Like, ignorant. they are spying on us all the time. The U.S. is yeah. spying on China from low Earth orbit, and the Chinese are spying on us from low Earth orbit. And you know what? It's really not the worst thing in the world because, in my mind, we know that each other aren't preparing armies or something. You know what I mean? I feel like the whole idea of like overhead surveillance, we should all be cool with that because it can help prevent anyone from getting too nervous. Yeah, no, we definitely. had a, we had an agreement like that with the Soviet Union, Eisenhower. It was called the Open Skies Treaty, and it allowed for spy planes, not even low Earth uh, orbit satellites, but literally spy plane overflights. So, and that and that treaty we left that treaty just a little bit ago, right? Yeah. Yeah. That was one of the ones the Trump administration junked. Curse John yeah. Bolton. 
Yeah, of course. Well, I, I was also wondering in your book, you talk briefly about um, China's monetary policy uh, mm. and, and libertarians are very interested in this, too. I'm wondering if you can contrast China's monetary policy with the United States. Well, it's it's a it's a tad bit complicated because they have two two renminbi, two yuan. They have, they have their offshore and then they have their domestic one. Now, their offshore one is pegged and they support that by spending their foreign reserves. Um their funding costs on that have gone up recently. Something I've been watching. I feel like they have plenty of room um, fiscally to do it because the, the the actual Chinese central government doesn't have a ton of debt. Uh, they actually have mo- the local municipalities do the borrowing. And I go into this relationship in the book between like the financial sector, banking sector, the state-owned enterprises and all that stuff. It's very complicated. It's a, it's a very, very uh, corporatist, statist economy. Like, most libertarians are used to thinking of the United States as being corporatist. This is this is really a whole other level of like the corporatist uh, totalitarian type state. Like they literally don't want anything outside the state. Like uh, members of the Communist Party are like openly members and they like are part of the decision making teams of these major Chinese firms. So th- there is a lot of state control going on there um, in terms of their monetary policy. They actually just cut rates Uh China's still a developing economy. They're used to letting inflation run, you know, several, several points higher than we tolerate here or are usually used to. Um, But they just cut rates. So that's a sign that they know growth is slowing. Uh, They've also had liquidity issues, especially with their property sector. Um, And they're just trying to let the air out of that bubble really gently while keeping the growth mobile going. There's a lot of youth unemployment. And I know this is like kind of controversial because, well, wages are getting better and stuff. It's like, yeah, but you don't want unemployed young guys, especially not when you had a lot of selective sex abortion because of the one child policy, which means that a lot of these guys don't have a job or a girlfriend. You don't really want a lot of 18 to 25 year old guys milling around with no girlfriend and no job. It's just not a good thing. And uh, actually, I think that's probably the Hawks best argument for why China is dangerous is that if the economy took a real hard turn for the worse, for whatever reason, and China's economy is showing some some unhealthy signs. We're all used to China's economy ripping along, but it, it has not been the same since that forced shutdown for years over COVID. Um, yeah, they might just try and throw them into a meat grinder with, with one of their neighbors. Maybe yeah. India, maybe in a fight over Taiwan. I, I don't think... All things being equal, uh, Xi Jinping wants to have a fight over Taiwan. And the reason I say that is because if you look at uh, Chinese, like we have our own security experts here, right? And we read about them at our things. Well, China has the same thing. And American declinism is a major narrative, has been for over a decade, that Chinese hawks essentially believe that America's done, that we're bankrupt. And it's just a matter of time before we have to slink back home. And... That essentially China is just going to that, that uh, Taiwan is just going to fall into their lap. Basically, it's very reminiscent of the way that um, early 19th century American politicians talked about Cuba, Spanish Cuba, that eventually it would just the force of our economic gravity will just drop it right into our lap. I mean, a military campaign would be very risky. There are all sorts of reasons to believe that China is in a position where maybe they could do it but maybe is not a great thing to stake your political career on. And a failed invasion would be the end of Xi Jinping's uh, time at that of the state. And uh, as we talked about public choice theory, 
He doesn't want to do anything that's that's going to put that at risk. So, but yeah. he also has built up Chinese nationalism to a point now. I mean, yes, there is still a lot of Marxist ideology, but it's being woven in with like Confucianism. Okay, and so it's interesting because Mao was this uh, uh, Marxist iconoclast who went to war against China's traditional culture, believing that those things made China weak. And it's been interesting to see how um, she conceptualizes things very differently. And I, I really have to say, it seems almost like the Marxism is taking a backseat to the Chinese nationalism, which is something that um, Sam Huntington, the political scientist who wrote Clash of Civilizations, he had predicted this back 20 odd years ago. And uh, so she has built this up into a very potent force and much like uh, world pre-World War One Germany, there's now an expectation that China's not going to be pushed around, that the regime has to deliver. So if I were the United States, I would be very, very reluctant to to push Xi into doing something like that, um, because he is not some sort of dictator who can do whatever he wants. He has constituents, constituencies that he needs to please in the military, in the economic sector, the public. He's not totally unaccountable. And so I think the United States just needs to be more intelligent with how they navigate the China relationship. Especially if China really is that nationalistic, because every time we have like a Nancy Pelosi visit Taiwan, it just creates a rally around the flag effect. And and earlier in the podcast, you alluded to this, that um, conservatives like to say that that Biden, like the real problem here, the real reason that we have a war in Ukraine, the real reason that we have a war in Israel right now is because Biden has relied too heavily on diplomacy and he's just been too weak. Um, you alluded to the fact that actually we have signaled that we would actually defend Taiwan and that we are defending these rocks in, <laughs> across the globe. So uh, I'm wondering if you can actually talk about um, just more about the United States foreign policy and, and oh, can you hear me? Yeah, I can. I think my camera just gave out just a second. No worries. Yeah, I'm wondering if you can talk about United States foreign policy and, and just where it's been since we've kind of eroded the strategic ambiguity. What What is the current foreign policy stance? Yeah, that's that's a great point. So if you go back to the 1970s, and again, I detail this history in the book, because it's, it's important to know this stuff to understand why China behaves the way it does sometimes, because uh, the United States did not recognize uh, the Communist Party, Beijing. They recognized the quote-unquote Republic of China on Taiwan until uh, 1979. But there was a whole process that happened that took place. So essentially, uh, Nixon and Kissinger opened to China. They uh, signed what's called the first communique. And this acknowledged the principle that there is but one China and that Taiwan is a part of it. Um, the second communique comes along, and this normalizes relationships relations with Beijing. The mutual defense treaty that the United States had had with Taiwan is ripped up at that point. And then there's a third communique under Reagan, which says that, look, when it comes to Taiwan, uh, the arms sales are going to decrease over time, and that we're not going to send any new kinds of weaponry to them. And we're not going to have uh, part of the second communique had been no high-level diplomatic or military context. Well, Nancy Pelosi visiting Taiwan, she was the third highest ranking member of our government. That's a pretty high level diplomatic contact. Um, Kevin McCarthy, uh, when he was speaker, meeting with the with I think it was the vice president or president. It's a pretty high level contact. The U.S. has actual troops on Taiwan. 
I mean, so when when you look at the policy, and of course, the whole idea had been strategic ambiguity. We're not going to tell them whether or not we're going to defend Taiwan because that might prevent the Chinese from invading, Beijing from invading, and that might prevent the Taiwanese from declaring independence because they don't know if the United States has their back or not. Well, Joe Biden comes out and clarifies multiple times now, and he says, no, we're definitely going to defend Taiwan. And Congress attempted, well, some members of Congress attempted, it was finally stripped out of the final bill, but they attempted to give whoever was president the authorization they needed preemptively to go defend Taiwan. This is a huge moral hazard here. And I think I think the Taiwanese people are starting to wise up to like just how dangerous things are getting now because uh, there are two parties uh, on Taiwan. Again, we tend to talk about, uh, you know, Taiwan wants this. There are people on Taiwan and not all of them agree on things. Some Taiwanese support the Democratic Progressive Party. This is the Independence Party. Some of them support the KMT. This was the original Republic of China dictatorship party under Chiang Kai-shek. But now they're actually, ironically, the more Beijing aligned one. They, like they don't, they're not like rushing for reunification or anything, but they also are like, do not talk about independence, nothing like that. Um, actually, while the DPP uh, leadership was here in the United States talking to Kevin McCarthy, the KMT leadership was in Beijing saying, listen, we just shellacked them in the local elections here. We're going to get the presidency next year. Um, yeah, uh, it, it, it's it's dangerous. I mean, it's very split. Like they don't really want to be reunified with with mainland China. I think the way that uh, mainland China, uh, Beijing cracked down on Hong Kong really alarmed and turned off everyone who might have been open to it. I'm going to be 100 percent honest with you. And we don't have time to get into Hong Kong. But yeah, I mean, it makes sense. It makes sense that, that they would like us around. And when you look at the dynamics of it, they spend, you know, 20 million bucks a year lobbying Washington. That's a pretty darn good return. You know, you spread $20 million around to the right senators and the right think tanks. And before you know it, you're getting tons of weapons. You're getting the Israel treatment now is what they're getting. They're getting the free money to buy the equipment from us. Um, I don't know. I actually, this is similar to the dynamic in, in the run-up to the Ukraine war where they told us, look, we're putting in just enough weapons to deter Putin from invading, but not so many that will provoke him. And I remember thinking at the time, and I wrote three articles about this at the Mises Institute saying, you have no idea how many weapons is going to be too many or too few. And like this idea of calibration is nuts and you're going to provoke a war and boom. And yeah. Business Insider of all places just ran an article late last week that I saved where it asked the question. I was shocked to read it, but they said, is arming Taiwan like this going to provoke an invasion? And it's like, that's a great question. I wish more people were asking that because it very well might. So, so we, we are getting articles saying that generals are predicting that um, by, I, I think the date's 2025, the United States will be at war with China. Um, if we were to go down that path, it, it seems like, it seems to me that it is a different question to say that, or to ask whether the United or China is a threat currently. Um, and that's a different question from asking whether the United States would fare well if we actually went to war with China. Because though China currently isn't a threat, it seems to me we are extremely vulnerable and cannot afford a war at that scale right now. And and I do know that there are certain um, uh, war games that the United States has played where it doesn't end up well for us. So I'm just wondering if, if you can comment on that. Um, 
how do you think that it would play out if, if the United States went down this path? Well, everything you said is true and I don't think it would be good. Uh, and I always just like to remind people the British empire could have lasted a lot longer than it did if they hadn't been determined to contain Germany prior to the outbreak of world war one, they saw a reason to get involved with Germany's existing territorial disputes with its neighbors, chief among them, France. And man, we really can't afford a war and the, the military is very underpowered. And even if it weren't, even if it weren't, and even if we assume that no nukes go off, we're talking about like World War One, World War Two kinds of casualties. We haven't taken, we as a, as a society, as a nation, have not taken those kinds of, of, of casualties in any of our lifetimes. And I don't know how Americans would react to losing, for example, a carrier, like 3,000 guys dead right away. And that's what it would be. I mean, when they run those war games, we lose carriers. We lose half our planes. I mean, this is no joke. Like, this is not 1954 and we're overwhelmingly dominant. No, 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 no. Look, a battle way out in the Pacific, the U.S. Navy would dominate. But when we're talking about getting right up in China's face, no way. No way. It would be it would be a hugely bad idea. Hugely bad idea. And people ask, like, well, you know, China, what would they do? You know, would they nuke us? I worry more about the United States deploying a nuclear weapon, to be perfectly honest. Um, because, again, the war games get run. And Team Blue gets its ass kicked 99 times out of 100. And when you lose 3,000 guys, how are you going to react? I mean, you saw how it was recently. The United States wasn't even attacked. Israel was attacked. And you saw how people freaked out. So, and I, I remember how, and I, I was just a kid, but I can still remember how, how my parents talked after 9-11. Like, you just didn't question what the president was doing. He's the president and what he says goes. And that's how it would be. And uh, no, our military is very undermanned. Uh, the ships, oh man, the ships and the planes. The F-35 is such a boondoggle. Oh my goodness, Lockheed Martin, those bastards. That's that's a real good plane right there if you're looking to make some money. Always needs upgrades, never working right, costs a billion dollars. Oh yeah, that's a great plane right there. Um, well, the, the, the frigates that they built, that they spent all that money on and now the Navy's like, yeah, they're crap. They don't even work. We need new ones. Them things aren't even a decade old. Can't make this shit up. No, I mean, China, and I will say this because people will read, well, China has the biggest Navy now. They're the biggest Navy in terms of ships. They're nowhere close to us in tonnage. Okay, they got a bunch of small rinky-dink ships. They could not, like, sail out into the Pacific Ocean and, like, challenge the United States on open water or something like that. Like, that's crazy. They couldn't. And they have no interest in doing that. They don't even have interest in conquering their neighbors. My new article coming out this week is all about China's territorial disputes with all of its neighbors, current, as well as settled. Because the overwhelming majority of territorial disputes China had with its, you know, 20 different neighbors were peacefully resolved. And in fact, China almost every time gave its uh, trading partner, gave its neighbor the bigger slice of the pie, you know? So like Kyrgyzstan and China had a territorial dispute. China gave them like 60% of it, took like 40%. So it's not like China hasn't had territorial, territorial disputes. The thing is, is it's, and I guess I'll leave you with this because it's often 
spoken about like, well, it's because the Chinese are authoritarian and communist and stuff. That's why they're so dangerous. The nine dash line that China uses, if people aren't familiar with that, Google nine dash line, you'll see that there's a hand, hand drawn lines going around the South and East China Sea, nine hand drawn dashes, right? And this is China's territorial maritime claim. This is why they're fighting with the Philippines over the Spratleys and with Vietnam over the Paracels, with uh, Japan over the Senkakus. That's why that's happening. That map is based on very old Qing Dynasty claims, or maybe it's even Ming Dynasty, but it was the Republic of China under Chiang Kai-shek that broke that out and used it in modern times before they got beaten out by the communists who said, this is all our territory. And you know what? The Republic of, of China still exists. It's on Taiwan today. They've given up none of those territorial claims. So the whole idea that, well, if only China would transform and become democratic and then it would be peaceful. Wrong. That's just not how it works. Big states act like big states. There's a reason the United States is really big. If you remember, it started out as 13 tiny little colonies. Didn't stay that way. And it used to be even bigger. So it used to have colonies all over the place. So I would just tell people, look, I understand that it's unusual to uh, see China treating another state as its equal. But that's really how it should be. Um, the U.S. has no need to go abroad trying to solve everyone's problems. And even if you believe that they should, I would think that the last 25 years have shown you that they suck at it, that they're garbage at it. They do nothing but cause problems, make us unsafe and make us bankrupt. So, no, not on any level should people be embracing these policies anymore. And if you look at the public, the public just doesn't care about them. They don't care. And it's such a low priority. Republicans would be so well served by ditching all this tough guy rhetoric. Americans do not care about what's going on, on the other side of the world. And that goes for when people are doing terrible things, too. Right. Um, again, I'll just use the war in Yemen as an example. Like hundreds of thousands of people getting starved and bombed to death. Americans didn't care at all. And as soon as, you know, our guys stopped dying in Iraq and Afghanistan, they quit giving a shit about all those other, you know, Iraqis and Afghanis who are getting killed. They don't care about any of that stuff. So it's up to us, I think, to lead the discussion, to show uh, particularly like, uh, you know, populist right and, uh, you know, anti-war left people like this is how to talk about these issues. These is this is how to approach it. Um because the people who have the monopoly on foreign policy discourse right now, the liberal internationalists, uh, which is the, the centrist Democrats and the neoconservatives, you know, the, the Nikki Haley centrist Republican types, they've done nothing but fail. And it's had so many costs, you know, and uh, it's it's it generally gets some of the biggest applause lines at the GOP debates. And that is that has yeah. not been lost on anyone. So. Yeah, well, it, it seems like this story is definitely not going away. So we're going to have to have you back on. Um, I'm, I'm sure there will be developments on this front. 2024 is a long time away. Uh, and, and Biden could escalate um, any of these conflicts at any point. And uh, even if Biden did lose the election, it doesn't seem that the Republicans are any better on this issue. So um, this book is extremely important. Uh, will you please tell people where they can find it? Sure. Uh, the Fake China Threat and Its Very Real Danger is out now at the Libertarian Institute. While you're there, be sure to check out all the other great books we've got and we've got more coming um, and spread them around. Spread them around. We uh, we can definitely make a difference on the discourse. Um, so, yeah, and you can follow me on Twitter 
uh, or at the Libertarian Institute, you can feel free to email me if you have any thoughts or questions. That's about it. Great. Well, thank you so much, Joseph. Thanks a lot.